Welcome to Affect Autism. This week, we have the pleasure of speaking with psychiatrist Dr. Josh Fader, who is in California. And I'll let you tell me exactly where in California and what the weather's like, because here outside of Toronto, it's pretty cold. Um, we are going to talk about repetition today, and we'll give you more details on that in a second. But first of all, welcome, Dr. Fader. Well, thanks so much, Daria. It's great to be here. Yes, I am in Solana Beach, California. It's a northern city, well, a city north of uh, San Diego in Southern California. So it's warm and sunny, about 72 degrees most of the year, and today is no different. Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> and did I pronounce your name correctly? Fader. Fader. Okay, great. Um, so first, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do and your um, experience with DIR, the DIR model and floor time? Sure. So I am a child and family psychiatrist. I actually started out in mathematics and brain theory, biomedical engineering, and uh, fell into developmental disorders, went through medical school, um, actually worked as a teacher doing uh, applied behavioral analysis uh, when I was uh, quite young. And then uh, as I kind of moved into psychiatry and child psychiatry, learned about the uh, DIR model. Uh, there's a story on the web, but part of it has to do with uh, my own son's uh, autism. Um, my uh, career has uh, come to a point where I'm an associate professor at the University of uh, California at San Diego in the Department of Psychiatry, where I've been doing research for about the past 10 years in blended developmental behavioral uh, approaches. Um, I'm also a faculty member with both uh, ICDL and Perfectum and an adjunct uh, professor at Fielding Graduate University, um, which is based out of Santa Barbara, but it's online and in our um, PhD program in infant and early childhood development. Um, my research also includes some tech development where we're looking at games uh, and also um, uh, video coding technology right now, and um, what else? Uh, I do a lot of things. I'm also editor-in-chief of the Carlat Child Psychiatry Report, which is a uh, continuing education newsletter for fellow child psychiatrists. Um, but a lot of my uh, work uh, daily uh, in my clinic is uh, with people uh, with developmental challenges, as well as other kinds of things. DIR is uh, actually not just for uh, people with autism that was de developed um, in uh, difficult circumstances, difficult socioeconomic circumstances in the Washington, D.C. area, and we're applying it to peace building with young children, um, and I travel um, uh, a number of weeks per year to places that have been impacted with, uh, by armed conflict um, and using DIR approaches in those settings. Great. Well, all I can say as listeners, uh, we have somebody who is very knowledgeable on our hands here. So let's pick your brain and find out what you can um, tell us today to help us out in our own DIR practices because you clearly have um, so much experience and we're very grateful to have you here with us. So uh, the topic today is repetition in autism therapy. When is it good and when is it bad? And what made me think of this topic was an article that had come out, um, I think it was uh, late last year or, or sometime in the last year, that repetition may limit scope of skills in people with autism. 
So while ABA, Applied Behavioral Analysis Therapy, has been the norm, um, it does involve a lot of repetition, although that is a, a broad um, overstatement. Um, we could get into details, but we'll, we'll leave it as um, repetition is starting to be questioned. So I wanted to talk about what kinds of repetition we're talking about, because we also know that practice is really good, and especially the field in psychology of deliberate practice, um, which is not so much related to autism, but when we see children working through the different functional, emotional, developmental capacities, you will see that they do need to repeat activities over and over again to help them master their skills. So what's the difference between good repetition and bad repetition? It's a great question. And as you say, in um, behavioral type approaches, one of the principles is to repeat things the same way each time so that people have a better chance of learning to do them correctly. And the theory is that you're training someone to um, behave in an, what's considered an appropriate way or, or normal, uh, for lack of a better word. In the developmental approaches, um, we observe that when you actually teach somebody to do some of those things, they don't necessarily um, adapt to new situations. So for instance, if I uh, teach a child to ask uh, peers um, you know, about themselves by walking up to them, shaking their hand, looking them in the eye and asking, what's your name, what's your favorite color, you know, things like that. And if they actually learn that and do that, um, they appear rather odd and strange to their peers who are much more flexible in their ability and their thinking. So it kind of begs the question, what, what do you want someone to learn when they're uh, becoming able to um, uh, communicate with other people? And I would take us back to the work of Ed Tronic um, out of Harvard, who observes that a normal um, infant-parent interaction, and really in all uh, interaction, there's a, a flow of back-and-forth communication that actually gets broken uh, often. So in DIR, we talk about being uh, settled enough to be able to connect with somebody, then connected in an emotionally uh, meaningful way, the love, if you will, and then getting into a flow of um, meaningful back and forth interaction. And what Tronic would say is, well, that's great, but at the same time, if you're you know, holding the baby in your arms, something always happens. The phone rings and you're distracted baby calls you back and you know by cooing or crying or something like that or the baby is distracted by something who knows what and you're calling the baby back hey where'd you go buddy and and, and the baby's coming back and what happens is um, over and over you get these breaks but then these initiated repairs of the interaction and um, either you or maybe the baby is um, initiating that that repair right and it's nice when there's a balance of that because if for instance, the child is having some difficulties with um, sensory problems, motor problems, things like that, and you're always doing all the work, um, what tends to happen is that um, the baby doesn't develop its own sense of agency or separateness from you, and you get a little frustrated. You might even kind of you know, give up after a while if you have somebody who's not responding to you very much at all. Um, on the other hand, if you have um, an infant who's trying and trying and trying and you're not responding very much, maybe because you're a depressed parent or something like that, well, then the baby tends to kind of give up too. But when it goes well, 
um, what happens is that the baby who's initiating solves the first social problem, which is reconnecting with the parent. And in doing so, begins to understand that she's separate from me, but also able to connect with me. And that's really an important thing. It's a developing sense of self and sense of competence in one's own competence to um, be able to reconnect. But, but again, this happens over and over in little ways, but it's always different, always a little bit different. So on the one hand, it's practicing something and getting better at it, getting more confident in it, and it's, it's always a little bit different. And in floor time, that's very similar. So you know, lots of times we'll be uh, doing something, whatever it is, uh, playing, let's say, on the floor, and we're playing with, let's say, Legos, and uh, seeing, well, I, you know, Somebody wants, you know, this, that, and the other to build whatever they're building. And oftentimes in floor time, we might corral those Legos so that they kind of have to go through us to get them. And over and over, they're asking for it, but it's always a little bit different, right? So we, we don't want to, you know, aggressively obstruct them as much as we want to join them. And we want to join them in something that's continuing and that's the same in that it's building with whatever it is, the Legos. Um, but it's always, you know, it's a little different. I'm not sure if you want this one or that one. Do you need two or three? Um, I'm sorry, are we building here or there? I mean, so there's, there's all kinds of little differences within that. And it's much more, well, meaningful because the child wants to be doing it. It's not like we're trying to drill them or train them. And it's quite natural. So what we're doing is we're giving somebody who would otherwise have difficulty getting those millions of interactive experiences that most kids get we're providing a lot of those experiences, but in a way that's uh, relatively natural. So the, the idea here is that, um, and again, going through the functional, emotional, developmental levels, you know, once you're regulated and then connected with the person and then having a little bit of you know, circles of interaction where the child does something, you do something in response, and then closing the circle, the child does something that indicates to you that your response is meaningful to the child. But once you get a whole lot of those circles going, it gives you the power to do problem solving, practical problem solving, whether it's Legos or getting a snack or those kinds of things. And it also forms the basis when people are neurologically mature enough and ready. So, you know, we're talking about 18 months plus, ready to start. Uh, thinking about um, ideas of things that aren't present in the moment. So symbolic kind of thinking becomes possible because of that kind of repetition. So just to make sure that um, I've got down everything you said, if I understood you correctly, um, we're talking about repetition in a very sterile kind of sense where you're training somebody to do something, the same thing over and over again, versus very natural repetition, such as um, my son, who loves to build blocks in the sensory gym with big, um, you know, those big pillow blocks or whatever. And then they'll do different kinds of fun things in floor time to knock them down. Maybe he'll swing and kick, kick it over. Maybe another day he'll ride a little uh, scooter into it and knock it over but they might be building that tower for six months. And through those six months, yes, he's doing the same thing every day. He's building a tower and knocking it down, but he's in a natural way where he's motivated, he's regulated, he's engaged with them, he's having back and forth interactions with them. He is starting to 
come up with ideas and work on his motor planning skills, all in that fourth uh, functional emotional developmental capacity. He's working on his visual spatial abilities and he's getting all of this uh, while having fun. So that's very different than the sterile type of repetition. Is that the gist of, of what we're discussing? Yeah, it's meaningful. And look, this isn't to say that learning specific skills and repeating them isn't useful at times. For instance, if you're a firefighter, you need to learn how to do the procedures for rescues. If you're a soldier, you need to learn how to, you know, take your gun apart and put it back together blindfold. And then you need to know those procedures. But I would argue that your ability to use those skills um, in real life, if you needed to do so, when you need to do so, um, is predicated on uh, an ability to adapt to new situations. And your ability to adapt relies on the more foundational things of being regulated and connected and in a flow of interaction and able to work creatively with ideas. So it's not that all training is bad, it's just that if you do it without a base of relating, uh, of, of uh, social uh, communication problem solving, then your ability to use it in a, in a productive and adaptive way is, is really very limited. Now, we certainly have um, kids in school, and maybe this is part of the confusion, you know, when you have typical kids in school, they get drilled on things all the time, and then they often go off and use them in new and meaningful ways. But we're not talking about um, kids who are um, able to do that naturally. We're talking about kids who haven't had the um, support uh, needed to be able to uh, have those foundations that would allow you to be able to be adaptive with that sort of training. And so that's what we're doing in DIR Floor Time. We're trying to help people develop those kinds of um, social relatedness, social emotional skills that are necessary for all um, learning and then later adapting your learning to, to new situations. So I think uh, another example along those lines would be um, a child who eventually is starting to show interest in literacy. So, example is my son, it always is. <laughs> he is starting to be very interested in reading letters. Everywhere he sees it, he says things, and he, he says adorable things like, the L is tipped over. If he sees a right angle somewhere on a building, he just notices, he says, L tipped over. So he sees the letter L, and his name starts with the letter L. So it's, it's really sweet to see that. But he's reading numbers and this. So there's a difference between him needing to know the alphabet and knowing what letter is what, recognizing the letters. Maybe he's memorizing A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Maybe he's going through and learning versus then knowing what to do with those letters, um, memorizing how to spell or memorizing words. Um, for instance, he loves model trains. We'll go to a model train show and he'll say the name of the model train across the train. It says Union Pacific and people think he can read, but he has just memorized that that look of letters on that color of background is a Union Pacific train. And if you show him two trains that are similar, there's a certain type of diesel train that's blue with yellow letters that says Santa Fe, and there's another one that says Alaska or Alaskan or something, and they're both the dark blue with the yellow letters. The first time he saw the Alaskan, he said Santa Fe. So that's how we know he doesn't really necessarily know how to read what's on there, but he's memorized it. But at a certain point, he'll get to the point where he will be able to decode and read. So um, 
I don't know if is that um, is that another example of learning things in a repetitive way and memorizing things versus knowing how to apply it and how to use those skills. Well, it is, and and look, I, I I was a parent too with a young child trying to figure out is he going to learn what's he going to learn and concerned about will he know numbers and letters and colors and things like that and so um, you can see that a lot of our our early learning a lot of preschool learning has to do with identifying things and so a lot of the training we have for kids um, on the spectrum traditionally has been that sort of learning. But as you say, if you learn to point to something green, point to green, point to green, point to green, that doesn't mean that you understand what green really is other than that green square that you've learned to point to. You don't get the concept of, oh, trees and grass, and those are kind of green, right? So it's always been a problem within the um, behavioral community of generalization. This is, this is part of the reason uh, for for that sort of uh, problem, and you know, when you're talking about um, using someone's interest, whether in their own name or in trains or something like that, as um, the basis for learning, it just becomes so much easier. Um, mathematics, uh, we tend to teach people by drilling them, right? And how do you do this formula, that formula? How do you recognize it and do it? Well, that's not how mathematics got developed. I mean, every math um, solution was because there was a problem that was meaningful to somebody and usually they worked on it for years or decades to try to figure out how to get there and so you have people doing repetitive kinds of um, thinking or research whether in math or science or this or that engineering um, and you would think well they're only focused on this area but, but there's a myriad of things you need to learn as part of that and so here's another good example back to um, your trains. Well, trains also have history, and trains have things to read about, and trains have engineering, and trains have, you know, all, all just every bit of science, you know. Can a tanker car hold sand, and can it also hold gasoline, and what do you need to do to switch them out? I mean, every everything you could possibly think of learning can be eventually connected to whatever it is um, you're interested in. And that doesn't mean you just flood the kid with all kinds of new stuff. It's all very gradual, developmentally appropriate, but there's no reason not to take someone's interest, even if it's a little bit peaked compared to their other uh, peers, um, and use that as your basis, as your platform for, for learning. So, so again, getting back to your, your son, who might want to build towers with the big blocks, um, there's just so much that can happen with that. Um, and, um, and, and in a natural, organic way where you're just discovering the physics of these blocks together, not always with words, um, sometimes just what's the feel of it? Whoa, it's gonna fall away, you know? Um, and maybe eventually it turns into, you know, a big monster that's falling over on you. Or maybe um, we're talking about the construction of, uh, you know, tower technology or whatever it is. Um, you can use the things that somebody gives you as your uh, fuel to be able to move forward in pretty much any way, um, socially, academically, uh, and motorically. So it, it's amazing when you take somebody's ideas and build on them rather than trying to train them to some uh, standard um, at you know, the very beginning of treatment, even through uh, later, uh, later life. And, and it really does go back to following the child's lead, which is follow their interest and their passion so that they are motivated to be in an interaction with you. 
and through those interactions be able to develop all of these capacities, uh, the foundations that are necessary before they can move on. Um, I wanted to, um, um, oh, I had something in my head. What was I going to say? <laughs> Just, oh, I know what I was going to say. Do you have any tips for the parents listening or even new practitioners who um, kind of get to that point of being frozen? Like, I know that my child really loves, um, I don't know, uh, well, we'll just stick with trains. But I don't know, like you just gave some wonderful examples of how you could go in any number of ways as he continues to develop. We've noticed his interest over three years change very much from just wanting to watch them go round and round on the track to really being interested in how they switch tracks, pick up cars, go switch to the other track, dump them off, and wanting to control the, the controls to make, it, make him do that. So he's progressing along in his interests and um, you know, eventually we'll get to all of the other things. I'm sure I'll be able to teach him math and everything, all based on, on this interest, unless he suddenly gets a new interest. But let's say that somebody's um, child is really interested in water and water play and bath or something like that. And sometimes as parents, you're tired and you, you just get stuck. Like, um, how, do we, how do we get into our own... Um, creativity to figure out how how to help our child if sometimes our child is stuck and has motor planning challenges so they don't know what else to do they just know that they like something so they want to do the same thing over and over again when we really want to challenge and expand what they're doing well i think the key word is emotion or affect we call it uh, you know technically um, you know, we can talk about how an interest in trains can be linked to uh, math or science or history or what have you. But if it's all kind of uh, emotionally sterile, we're going to get pretty bored um, pretty quickly. On the other hand, if it's um, uh, exciting or frustrating or um, whatever, you know, if it has more of an emotional content, well, then we and the child are more engaged, it's more interesting, um, and, and the creativity comes. I, I'd like to ask people to think about the things that get them excited um, or uh, artistic or creative, and it might have nothing to do with their child, it might have to do with uh, their own job, one hopes. Um, or hobbies or whatever that is, and to think about how you feel when you're doing those things and exploring whatever it is that you like to do, and, and both the frustrations as well as the triumphs of doing those things. And that's the kind of feel that we're looking for in floor time. A lot of it's very pleasurable, right? But a lot of it has other, other pieces to it, including the times when you're frustrated and in the middle of a tantrum and it's not fun for anybody, but you're still learning from each other. You're trying to stay calm enough, but still concerned and trying to be helpful. Um, in, in those circumstances and in the circumstances where you're following somebody's uh, interest and, and it's not just following what they do and saying, oh, there's math there. It's following what they're doing, truly taking an interest because it's kind of cool. The, one, of the, um, one of the principles of um, good therapy and, and also floor time for a parent um, is to remember that pretty much any idea is a good idea. It's not necessarily an idea that you're gonna go with, like, um, you know, I wanna order 10 pizzas, right? Well, it's a pretty cool idea. What would that be like to have 10 pizzas show up at the door, you know? And so you run with the idea, you don't necessarily execute it, but you're kind of thinking about it and embracing it that, 
yeah, I mean, that would be like pretty interesting. Or how will that turn out? I mean, how, what are we going to do with all those pizzas? Do you think we can eat all those pizzas? And so instead of, you know, saying, no, that's not appropriate, you're saying, wow, there's an idea, you know, let's think about what that would be like. And that helps you um, be engaged, keep your energy with your child, all those kinds of things. And so I, I'd argue that when it goes pretty well, you take on a lot of your kids' interests. And that happens in typical childhood. Look, when you have somebody who's, I don't know, uh, a, a soccer player and they're into it, well, what do parents do? They kind of get into it. If they don't, well, then they're not having a very good time. But if they kind of get into it, hopefully not so much that they're trying to control the whole thing. But, you know, if they get into it, then it's kind of fun. We're all about the soccer because that's where our kid's at. Um, and this isn't all that different except that, you know, there is, there is more time and, and thoughtful work involved in um, – reflecting and thinking, well, what's going to be helping my child? So I know we need to end in a little bit, but I would end with this thought. We don't do this in a vacuum. I don't, you know, just go in with um, sessions and, you know, usually it's with parents because I'm trying to help them to, to do better. I don't want it to be all about me working with the child. But, um, but, I, it, but none of that work is done in a vacuum. I'm always thinking with my colleagues about how's this going and, you know, um, ideas about what might help help it go better. Um, and I think that's true at every level. So for a child, the child is depending on the parent or the caregiver or therapist to support them in elaborating their ideas. And the parent or the caregiver or the therapist needs to rely on other people who they can, who can support them to kind of come up with ideas and um, think about, you know, what might work next. It, there's this chain of supportive, reflective uh, practice that I think is really an important piece and keeps us moving in better directions most of the time, even though you, know, you certainly run into times when you're stuck, but you're less stuck uh, and um, for less time when you're working together with uh, friends and colleagues. Well, certainly that's my goal at Affect Autism is to provide that kind of support to parents. And, and we're gonna do a blog um, coming up in the next month or so about ideas um, for doing this kind of thing. And um, Dr. Fader has a great website called circlestretch.com with all kinds of resources. We'll link to that in the full blog post. Um, I think the most challenging part is when the children are not yet verbal and maybe don't have those ideas that they're able, or they have them, but they're not able to share them yet or get them out. Um, that, I think that's the hardest when the kids are really young um, to really, you know, when, I, when you hear the parents say, all they do is wander around the room from thing to thing to thing. And that's where we really have to watch and engage and try and make some kind of playful um, interaction happen. And, and a lot of times just sitting and, and waiting and watching, things come to you. Um, so I think that's the hardest part that um, I'd like to revisit in future uh, blogs about, about what to do when you're really stuck. Because as the child gets verbal, like you said, oh, well, wouldn't that be cool if we ordered 10 pizzas? It's, it's a lot easier, I think, for parents when, when the child is verbal. And um, One last point I wanted to make is that um, when parents see children going back to the same thing over and over again, and they might think, oh, no, like we're, we're being repetitive, um, I want I want to suggest that it might be a child needing to work through something. So they're going back and revisiting certain sequences over and over again, and that's their way of practicing and working through skills, whether it's 
like we discussed motor planning or visual spatial skills or, or other types of things. Um, do you have any last word about that kind of thing? Yeah, real briefly. So we often have kids who turn the lights on and off um, and that's what they really like to do. And it's a little bit disruptive for everybody else. Look, the lights are on and off and on and off. Um, and so the question is, can you roll with that and do something with it and be excited about that with them? And can you also understand that it's possible that the reason that somebody is um, very attuned to and interested in taking control of the lights is that they might have been frightened by lights going on and off at some point. And uh, it's a way of um, taking what passively occurred to you and becoming active in terms of figuring it out and being in charge and working on it. That's a very common um, psychological response, a, a normal one for lack of a better word, but it's played out in a way that might be more perseverative in a lot of um, our kids uh, with developmental challenges, particularly autism related um, challenges. And so part of our job is to remain um, empathic about that, that somebody's working through it. And then at the same time, um, you know, working with it over time to, you know, kind of shift it and see about how, how long they might be on or how long they might be off or what happens when the lights are on or off. Um, and sometimes that does occur in a setting where somebody isn't verbal. So that is something, uh, a great topic for another time to talk about the verbal versus nonverbal. But I'd say the main um, point there is to try not to, um, get frustrated and then start calling these sorts of things bad behavior, you know, don't know, you know, that sort of thing. And instead seeing if we can understand it um, from whatever perspective, psychologically, uh, in a sensory fashion, um, you know, this is really cool. I don't know if you've ever done it just for fun, but it makes a pretty interesting thing. Calling it behavior and it must be suppressed, you know, doesn't, doesn't really do much in terms of learning. Um, but um, working with it and kind of understanding other things that flutter and sort of moving your world and expanding it, well, you know, maybe you can, maybe you can roll with it and go somewhere with it. So I would say just try not to call it bad, call it um, something interesting that you want to join the child and explore it with them. So rather than controlling and suppressing the child, really being empathetic and trying to see what that what it is about it that they're interested in and trying to expand that and, and go with it and play in that space yeah as much as possible and that's almost always possible the times when it's not is if you have someone who's running into traffic well obviously you need to corral that or re you know redirect or you know put up the fences and run in a different direction have a direction to go to that's not into traffic um, or, you know, light, uh, you know uh, light sockets. I mean, you know, you need to cover those sometimes. But, but you know, those are the, the, the relatively rare exceptions. Almost everything else you can work with. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And um, we'll put links to things that we discussed today in the full blog post. Again, you can see more about Dr. Fader and some of his resources at circlestretch.com. I also want to mention that you do some great work for advocacy with uh, the DIR uh, Coalition of California, advocating for floor time therapy. So thank you for that as well. And um, thank you for being with us. You're welcome. Have a great day. And until next week, everyone, here's to affecting autism. <laughs>